0: There was a recent Gallup poll that produced some alarming results earlier this year. It was the number of U.S. citizens who are being treated for depression today. It's six points higher than what it was four years ago. I I don't get into a lot of these studies, but it caught my attention as I was scrolling through social media uh, some time ago, and it struck me. Those numbers are reflected globally as well with regions like Western Europe, the Middle East, and North Africa and South Asia reporting similar patterns of that steady rise, incline of people in our world who have this intense depression or heavy weight on them right now. Now, I am no statistician. I'm certainly not a psychologist, but those numbers, they burden me. I'm sure we all have our opinions on the matter, some helpful, some less so. Whenever we talk about anything like this, it's, it's a split poll. I share most of your questions and concerns about, well, how has this been historically reported? How has it been historically diagnosed? I, I get that. But the fact remains that in a world where most illnesses are more treatable than ever before and where global poverty has decreased by a billion since 1990, many feel this heavy weight surrounding them. We've done what we normally do, and that's we throw money at the solution. In fact, the American Psychological Association recently revealed that depressive disorders are among the most expensive to treat, ranking sixth most costly health conditions overall, coming in at an over $70 billion a year. All of this proves one of my favorite quotes by W.P. Kinsella's 1980 remark on the human condition when he said, it's money they have and peace they lack. But this issue of this heavy weight that we feel, it is nothing new. Even amongst those who have so much This is an ancient issue, a a long term problem. You can even read about it in the Psalms of David when David the king, David the man who has more money than he knows what to do with, David the man after God's own heart, David writes, I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. And then in verse 8 of Psalm 38, he says, I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Now, although many times David in his writings, we can, we can trace the root to the problem. Very often, it's some sin that he's committed. Very often, it's a severe family issue that he's undergoing, and it is he has some severe family issues. We'll just leave it at that. You think your family has problems. Read David's. But just as often, David himself has no idea why he is mourning. He has no clue as to why he is suffering with this heavy burden. And he tries to rally himself out of this bout with depression by crying out. Psalm 42, verse 5. He, he cries out, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him for the help of His countenance. This weight... The sorrow, it is no respecter of persons. It affects the disciplined Christian and the careless. It affects the rich and the poor, the happily married and those whose relationships are on the rocks. Recently, I was reminded of Charles Spurgeon's battle with depression. Many of you may have, you may have not heard of this hero of the faith, but Spurgeon was a 19th century British pastor that preached and wrote extensively extensively. His most famous library or his his most famous literary achievement is his commentary on the whole book of Psalms, which is vast uh, and, and important. It was called The Treasury of David. So he was intimately aware of David's fight with this unnamed monster of melancholy in the Psalms. But Spurgeon's relationship with despondency was firsthand. In the fall of 1856, his church had outgrown their building, and with a congregation that was thousands strong, massive congregation, they were forced to rent out the facilities of the Surrey Gardens Music Hall in London. On October 19, 1856, with over 10,000 in attendance on a Sunday night, whoa, that's crazy, Charles Spurgeon was conducting those services when someone in the crowd We never found out who, shouted, fire, fire, fire. The galleries are giving way. The place is falling. It was all a vicious prank. There was no fire. Spurgeon wasn't able to calm the crowd, though. They had been scared into this frenzy. At at the end of the rampage to the exits, there were seven who were laid out dead, trampled. Trampled. Under everyone's feet, 28 were hospitalized with serious injuries. And Spurgeon took these deaths personally. For several years, Charles Haddon Spurgeon muddled through. And he described a season of life in which he essentially came out of his study only to preach and eat oftentimes only taking meals in his study so that he wouldn't have to interact with anybody because of the weight of this. Eventually, he would write that the fog would lift, and Spurgeon wrote a small book based upon a series of lectures that he had given his ministerial students entitled, Encouragement for the Depressed. In it, this man who we call the Prince of Preachers, Spurgeon, he warned us, Beware, my Christian friends, of living by feeling. If there's anything that the Christian church in America and the modern world needs to hear today, it is, beware, my dear Christian friends, of living by feeling, ruled by emotions. But he goes on, and he he takes it a different direction. He, He cautions about flitting to and from emotional religious feelings, saying that very often... Christians live for the feeling of church. Did you feel that this morning when we sang that song? Man, it was good. It does my heart good. I need that. There is value in congregating together. But if your spiritual life is only the high points of congregational singing, friend, i got to tell you, there is so much more than the Christian life. Monday sets in, and we find ourselves in the valley. Plainly, Spurgeon goes on to write, He that lives by feelings will be happy today and unhappy tomorrow. And if our salvation depended upon our feelings, we should be lost one day and saved another. For they are as fickle as the weather and go up and down like a barometer. We live by faith. And if that faith be weak, bless God, that weak faith is, and that weak faith is true faith. Spurgeon goes on to encourage us about that weak faith in the midst of trial by saying that Satan trembles when he sees the weakest of saints on his knees. You think your weakness covers you and all throughout Scripture and the saints that have gone before us, they will say that your weakness is what makes the strength of God more prominent. So much of this great preacher's advice about battling depression comes from a couple of verses that are tucked in the corner of the book called Hebrews. I think probably because of how good Hebrews 11 is, the hall of faith, by faith Abraham, by faith Noah, all those, so good. I think because that's so prominent, we forget about Hebrews 12, verses 12 through 13. And then even in Hebrews chapter 12, We are reminded of this great cloud of witnesses that are cheering us on to run this race of faith. That we just focus in on those first couple of verses in the chapter and we never get to verse 12 and 13. But the Holy Spirit has an encouragement to those who feel heavy and feeble. When he writes in verse 12, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. One mom in the congregation mothering a two-year-old when she found out I was preaching on this text earlier this week she texted me and said this passage describes me tired hands, weak knees hashtag toddler life. You feel that? The fact of the matter is that it describes all of us at one point or another in our life. Weak hands, feeble knees. Maybe not right now in your life. Everything might be snapping right into place for you, although I, I probably would guess that that Getting back into the swing of things that back to school post-summer high is probably weaning off for the majority of us. Maybe this passage describes your entire life. And perhaps your chronic issues that just keep crippling you. Whoever and wherever you are, I believe that the Lord has something for you in these verses to encourage you today. Now we have to look at the context of this passage of Scripture. Specific to the text, the Holy Spirit has just finished explaining what it looks like for a child of God to be disciplined by His Father. That's not comfortable, but it is necessary. He says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Verse 9, Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? Quite plainly, this morning, if you're going through a season where the Lord is correcting you for some sin in your life, what the author of Hebrews is saying here is rejoice! Rejoice! Not at the sin and not at the pain of the correction. None of that's good, but the fact that God disciplines you is a sure sign that He counts you as one of His children. Now I, I know that sounds like the empty "This is going to hurt you. A, it's going to hurt me a whole lot more than it hurts you." kind of thing that we say. It's it's obvious how I that was a Freudian slip right there. We say that as parents, we don't mean it. But seriously, correction is an evident sign of love that the Lord does not want you to stay in that place of sin so he corrects you and it hurts It might not seem like it's good in the moment, but the fact that God wants to curb our direction towards Him, wants to head us off from the path of destruction that we're heading down, all of that is like a dad tackling his child to get him out of the way of a speeding car. It hurts, but it saves. That's the correction of a father. And what we have here in Hebrews twelve twelve is a Christian who for one reason or another, maybe because of her own sin, someone else's sin against her, or just because we live in a fallen and broken world, this Christian is sagging beneath the weight of life. Does she have hope? Is there hope for her who's heavy and feeble? Hands that can't even be lifted up. Feeble knees that are wobbly at best to stand on. Is there hope? Absolutely. I don't want to insult your intelligence because the text says what it plainly says. But there are a few points that might pass us by unless we slow down in these few verses. This word, hang down. Describing the hands which are hanging down. The weak and weary hands here. The original language is so much more descriptive. On top of that, this is the only time in Scripture when it's used. It it literally means these hands that have been sent everywhere. (laughs) That doesn't perfectly depict hands which now hang down. I don't know what does. They have been sent everywhere everywhere that day and they are spent there's a positive and there's a negative side to this isn't there it's possible that these hands have gone everywhere doing whatever they wanted gorging punching stealing straining for sin longing for this grabbing that grasping at that straining for this and now at the end of the day they are spent having worked for selfish and sinful ambition. That is one way to read this. The positive take on this passage is that you see a picture of someone who's trying everything to fix their problem. Think of the woman who was sick with an issue of blood for 12 years in the Gospel accounts. you remember her where she touched the hem of Jesus' garment and was immediately healed? We know so little about her, not even her name. But Luke records that this illness of hers It had not only taken its toll on her physically, but financially. Luke 8 verse 43 reads that she had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any. Some of you with chronic illnesses, you feel that? She'd been strung along by the newest and -and up-and-coming cure for her ailment until she was left penniless. Straining, striving for the cure. And comes home to weak hands. Whichever one it is, be it positive or negative, sinful or searching, possibly both, you get the picture of someone who is not just tired, but exhausted, spent penniless, caloriless. He has no money nor energy whatsoever to do one more thing. Add to this picture another unique biblical term here. Feeble knees. Feeble knees. Every time feeble is used in Scripture, it depicts palsy. Some handicap. Obviously, it focuses on some physical ailment or lack of strength that makes the walker wobbly at best, but lame, more as like. But strangely enough, that's not the case with knees. You would think that knees means what knees means in in Hebrews 12.12. And it very possibly does. But it actually a little bit more to it. It is only, this word is only and always used in reference to kneeling for worship. I'm going to go on a limb here because I can't find a lot of scholarly work to back me up on this. So you can, you can crucify me for heresy later. But I strongly believe that the feeble knees depicted here in Hebrews 12 isn't just another picture of someone who's tired and needs to get their way to the lazy boy or they're going to fall down. I think, again, based upon the context of the correction from the father, it depicts someone who has Loose knees spiritually. This is the person who has been bowing down to everything else in their life except Christ. Everything takes precedence, preeminence, preference, except God. Everything is built up before him. They have been loose-kneed and quick to bow to their own comforts, their own family, their own boss, their own ball team, their own weekend, and their own love interest. And they have yet to truly bow to Christ because they've been bowing all week to anything and everything else. And so you get this picture here, not just of someone who is tired, although they are absolutely tired in this, Instead, you begin to see the very reason for their exhaustion. All week, their hands have been sent here, sent there, everywhere, looking for the cure. Their knees have been bent and bowed toward every whim and impulse. And so the Lord commands, strengthen the hands which hang down. Strengthen the feeble knees. Stop bowing to everything Stop looking for the cure. It's right here. Make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. I want you to hear me, and I want you to hear me well this morning. Someone is going to misunderstand me. Someone is going to misquote me on this. I am positive. This is like the sixth edit of this paragraph because I know. Someone is going to mishear and misunderstand and misquote me. I want to thread this needle carefully because I think too often we treat it haphazardly. I am not saying that all depression comes from spiritual disobedience. That is not the case. Spurgeon, the psalmist, they are prime examples of that people of God who have suffered from intense wars against this malady since the fall of man. Good saints. Better saints than I who are in the Word and living obediently. They feel the weight of melancholy often and they are given to it for reasons that I do not know. So I'm not saying, hear me, I am not saying that all depression comes from spiritual disobedience. However, I also believe that a correction that the Lord has placed in our lives is that when I am disobedient to Him or calloused or estranged, I will feel the meaninglessness of life lived apart from Him. Do you hear me? Don't misquote me. When I am disobedient to the Lord, when I'm calloused, when I'm estranged from Him, I ought to feel the meaninglessness of life lived apart from Him. I know that's not popular. If you take it out of context this week, that's on you, not me. But my feeling of heavy feebleness and depression can at times, I'm speaking testimonially here, from me, that feeling can be at times a marker of my life living apart from Christ. Well, that's the problem. What's the answer? The author of Hebrews writes for us to simply Strengthen the hands and the feeble knees. How does one do that? Is there some exercise regiment to enlist? Do I have to sign up at a gym? Is there a supplement I can take in the morning to strengthen my hands and my feeble knees? The wording here is to build up. Build up the hands and the feeble knees. Knees. Really, the most literal translation for strengthening our hands and knees is to spiritually, spiritually straighten them. This just so happens to be the exact quotation from Isaiah 35, which Joanna read from earlier this morning, where that great author of scripture, Isaiah, looks into the future to see a new day that we all look forward to and then almost looks at his own feeble hands and his own weak knees and says, these will be no more. Let me remind you, I know you've already heard it once, but let me. it's too good to just simply pass by it again. Isaiah writes, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are, full, who are fearful hearted, Be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water and the habitation of jackals where each lay. There shall be grass and reeds and rushes a highway there shall be there, a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it. It shall be not found there." But the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I long for that highway of holiness. Sounds like something straight out of the 1950s, doesn't it? The author of that Hebrew text is playing on Isaiah's thoughts about what will one day be in the kingdom of God. No lame, no weary sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I look for it. I long for it. I hope you do too. But honestly, having a heavenly perspective will do you more good than what most psychologists will tell you. It helps you see life in the greater context of eternity. But what about now? Here? Are we just forever trapped in a feeling of meaninglessness or at least given to a season of it? No. The language of both Hebrews 12 and Isaiah 35, as I said earlier, it is one of building. When it says to strengthen or to build up, to make straight, We are to build this strong hands, these feeble knees. A few weeks ago, we prayed and we sang this morning, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, how is that exactly accomplished? Can I offer you one solution this morning? Only one. Most of you will probably deem this overly simplistic. And I want to be careful. I don't want to just say, here's the answer to all your problems with depression. That's not what I'm saying. But can I offer you one that maybe your doctor hasn't routed you to? Spiritual encouragement. Overly simplistic, I hear you. I have read the text of Hebrews 12 multiple times this week, and though those words, spiritual encouragement, they are not found once. In this text, it is ubiquitous throughout. In fact, most headings of most of our Bibles read at the top of Hebrews 12, spiritual exhortation, because they see this encouragement as so much the part of this passage. So lately, our family has been reading through the book of Acts and our family devotions, and I have been struck with the value of one of those characters Who flies under the radar more often than not, but who is integral to the gospel's expansion in the first century. And that man's name is Barnabas. Actually, that's not his name, that's just how we know him. His name is Joseph or Joseph. Barnabas is just a nickname, and it means the son of rest or son of encouragement. Simply put, Barnabas knew how to encourage. He knew how to give others rest and consolation. To come alongside and build them up to strengthen their hands to make straight the feeble knees. I don't think I realized the linkage between the two until this week in my study. Rest and encouragement. But they are very linked. When someone encourages me, they give me rest, maybe in what they said, maybe in what they did, but they have given me safe harbor or haven with their words or with their action. Rest and encouragement. Someone who can provide rest, whether literal or proverbial, he is an encourager. And for those of us with heavy hands and feeble knees, we need both. I hope you have an encourager in your life. This restful encouragement for which Barnabas was known for, what was it? How did it live itself out in his life? Well, the story of Scripture gives us two accounts and they are tied to Barnabas's thinking less of himself and more about others as Jordan shared with us several weeks ago in reference to humility. Quite honestly, that alone would fend off much of my heartache, much of the heaviness of this world if I thought, more of others and less of myself. Early in the church's history, the Christians were growing by leaps and bounds. By Acts chapter 4, thousands, thousands made up the Jerusalem church. It's so interesting that Oftentimes, we have a negative taste in our mouth about the mega churches, And I understand we need to be cautious about many things that come with that. But the, the first church in Jerusalem was a megachurch. Thousands strong. And many of them in that first church were enslaved and poor. And so there arose, there arose this need for people to give sacrificially to other Christians, through means of giving to the church, to care for the needs of everyone. And it seems as though everyone jumped on board, each giving as they were able, and then some even giving above and beyond that. Barnabas was one of those who gave above and beyond, although his sacrifice is literally a side note. Acts chapter 4 verse 36, and Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement or son of rest, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Look, I don't have time to get into all the nuances and all the detail about the value of family land among the Jews, but it was incredibly valuable. Suffice it to say that the land which the Jews owned in the promised land, it was never seen as their own land, but their family's land. And each head of household merely was a steward to the next generation until they received it at their birthright. It was so valuable that integral to their society was this thing called the year of jubilee in which after a certain number of years, land being dispossessed by a certain family would then get it back free of charge because the Lord had given it to them all the way back in the book of Joshua. In our area, we look at century-owned farms with all, don't we? And we should. That's awesome. I love seeing those signs as I'm driving down to Springfield about a century-owned farm over here. But it might help you to understand that we are talking about millennium-owned farms. Pieces of property here. Probably 1,400 years that this land had been in Barnabas's family. I say all of that to point out that Barnabas's gift of selling his land, it was not a mere token. It was not something that he just gave out of the excess of his life. It was all out sacrifice. One that was unheard of in his time. This wasn't just land. It was his namesake. He would pass this on to his child and he to his, but Barnabas saw his life as giving others a haven of rest. So when there were people who needed food and help, he sold it. Sold his namesake for their benefit. Those whose hands were heavy and knees bent kneeling on the throne of selfish ambition, they needed rest. And Barnabas not only provided the funds for them to be reached and cared for with the Gospel, but he also provided us the example of what it looks like for us to free ourselves from living for only the temporary. My life. My children's children. He gave His namesake and if that wasn't sacrifice enough, he actually gave his name. If you were to flip over a few chapters to the chapter 9 of the book of Acts, you'll see that the early church has been taken by storm by an up-and-coming new name. One which had a lot of infamy attached to it. Saul. Saul had been the guerrilla leader against the Christians a few months prior. His bloodlust had not been slaked while he was standing over Stephen's martyred body. He wanted more. So he approached the high priest for permission to travel around and to barge into homes and steal men, women, and children and throw them into prison for the act of worshiping Christ. And he was granted those papers to do that. This was permission that the high priest readily agreed to. But Jesus confronts Saul on the road to Damascus. And there, Saul the persecutor, he surrendered to Christ and he began to follow the way. You can imagine though that this conversion was a little hard to swallow among some of those first Christians. Acts 9 verse 26 says, And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. And did not believe that he was a disciple. Those horrible first century Christians. I can't believe they did that to him. We would react the exact same way. Oh my word. Probably worse. We'd probably pull a gun on him in church. More truth to that than you know. if some well-known anti-Christian came walking in here and tried to sit down on the pew with you this morning, I don't think they would join themselves to us either. Because we'd be scared. Whispers claiming that he was just a spy. This was all a ploy to get more names for his prison spread it like wildfire. And so one man stood up and stood for Saul. Acts 9:27 But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Barnabas stuck his neck out, put his own name on the line for Saul, and in so doing brought rest to heavy hands and feeble knees. There are several this morning in attendance who are praying about becoming members at New Hope Church. And I, I could not applaud that spiritual step more. I'm thankful for you. From time to time, I think it's good for us to be reminded of our church covenant. This is a promise that we make to each other when we join this church. Every prospective church member is given a copy of this. I won't read it in its entirety. But one portion reads, We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together for church conferences, public worship, and the observance of the ordinances of the gospel, nor fail to pay according to our ability for the support of the church, of its poor, and all its benevolent work. We agree to accept Christian admonition and reproof with meekness and to watch over one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace, to be careful of one another's happiness and reputation and to seek to strengthen the weak, encourage the afflicted, admonish the erring, and as far as we are able, Promote the success of the church and of the gospel. Isn't that good? We are essentially promising each other in those few lines that we will offer rest to each other, safe haven, consolation, which all mean spiritual encouragement. Barnabas's two acts of selflessness which are honestly only mere footnotes in the totality of Scripture, teach us about what it really looks like for us to strengthen others' hands which are spent. And to make straight the feeble knees which have been hurting and bowing at everything all week. It's that we put our namesake and we put our own name on the line. To bring rest and encouragement to others. I think that the Lord has called New Hope together for such a time as this in our community to strengthen others in Christ. To alleviate the heaviness and straighten that feebleness by being ministers of encouragement this week in our community. So I want two sides of this coin to be presented here this morning. Those of us who might be in the the slew of despond, I want you to see that you are perfectly situated, child of God, to receive strength from Christ. Isaiah 35. He will accomplish it. But in the meantime, He has also given you a means by which to do that. And that is the congregation of believers. That we come alongside each other lovingly encourage and give rest to those who need it. And the other side of the coin, I want those of us who might not be going through that season of depression, I want us to see that our goal, one of our main goals, is to be a minister of encouragement this week the lord is going to place you in the path of someone this week who has very heavy hands and very feeble knees you must strengthen them by giving them rest make straight the path for your feet and for theirs so that what is lame might not be dislocated or made worse, but rather be healed for the glory of God until the day when he ultimately does it for us. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.